writers 
would use Hebrew parallelism to drive home their point. They would say one thing, and then they would repeat it, the same thing, in another way to reinforce their point. So what he says in sentence one and what he says in sentence two means the same thing. So look what he says in sentence one. Hear a just cause, O Lord. In other words, hear, hear me. And then he says, give an ear to my prayer. And so to hear and give an ear mean the same thing. And his just, his, uh, he says, attend to my cry. In fact, I just skipped over that word, didn't I? Attend to my cry, and here means the same thing. Cause and cry are the same thing. And so that's basically a parallelism. He's saying the same thing over again. Give an ear to my prayer. And then he says this, which is not from deceitful lips. King James says, which is not feigned. Uh, when he is praying this prayer, he's saying, I'm not, this isn't a hypocritical prayer. Uh, what I'm going to lay out in this prayer is exactly how it's happened. I'm not being duplicitous in any way in this prayer. It is not coming from deceitful lips. So, uh, he is crying out to the Lord. Now, in that sentence, look at that. Let's read it again. Hear a just cause, O Lord. This is his first request. I need your attention. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Uh, this is a very earnest because he uses the word cry. When you cry, a baby cries, it's trying to get the attention of its parents. When it cries, that cry means something. And when the parent hears the baby cry, the, baby, the parent gives attention to that baby's need. Whether it's a changed diaper, whether it's a diaper pen sticking into the baby, whether it's colic, we don't know what it is. The parent may not know what it is, but the fact that the baby's crying gets the parent's attention and they attend to that need. And it's the most natural thing to do for a baby to cry. Have you ever seen one baby in your life that didn't cry? And it cries for its parents. The most natural thing for Christians to do as children of God, is to cry out to their father for help when they're in trouble. And when we think we can go it alone, then we are prideful. And we think that we're self-made men and women. And what David's going to show us is that is the way of the world. That's not the way of a child of God. So that's what we need to see in this first verse. Now look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Let my vindication come from your presence. Uh, what he wants God to do is to look at it, look at the situation, to come down, uh, survey the situation, and he says, when you do that, you'll vindicate me. You'll see that what I'm asking indeed is a just cause. Then he says this, let your eyes look upon the things that are what? Upright. So he realizes, again, he's saying that my cause is upright, my cause is just. If you come down and look the situation over and you judge the situation, you'll see that what I'm asking is basically uh, an honest request. And here's the proof. Here's the proof. 
that what he is doing, what he's asking is just. Look at verse 3. You have tested my heart in his hand. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and you have found what? Nothing. Every time in the past when you tested me, you found out that I was always honest and I was always upright and when I cried out to you, it was never for a selfish reason. It was indeed a just cause. He says, you have found, you've tried me and you have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. He has determined uh, in his prayer that he was going to be as accurate as he can to God and not uh, spin the prayer, spin the request. So easy to do that, isn't it? Uh, but God has tested him in the past, and based on the past test, that David has indeed uh, the past past with the P test that David has passed. <laughs> is an indication that this prayer is up right as well. And then he says this, look at verse 4. Concerning the works of men. Oh, now, there is David. This is what David's like in verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the works of men. And when he says the works of men, he's talking about different kind than he has. He's talking about the evil works of men. Now, when you look at the average person out there, you're going to see something that's a little different. Okay? The evil works of men. By your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Now, notice this. He says, when you consider the works of men... Uh, we know where they end up. They end up going down the path of destruction. They follow the way of the destroyer. Now, when you talk about somebody who's a destroyer, you're talking about somebody who, what? Destroys. Thank you. They follow people who are destructive. And we know the Bible identifies somebody else as a destroyer. Anybody know who that is? Yes, Satan's the destroyer. And we're going to see that uh, uh, sort of hidden in this passage, we're going to see that Satan is behind these evil men. You'll see how this comes out as we look at the passage. But Paul, uh, David says in verse uh, 4, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. I haven't followed those men. Well, how? what is it that's allowed him to go the right way? What does he say? It was by your lips. Do you see that? By your lips. In other words, by your word I have kept from the paths of destroyer. Thy word have I hidden my in my heart that I might not sin against you. David was a man of the word. He knew what God's the words that came from God's lips, and he followed those, and therefore he did not go in the paths of these evil men. Now, notice the word paths there. Have we ever seen that word paths? if you've heard this psalm before. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners. 
Remember last year in our first psalm of the summer, we dealt with Psalm 1, we said that was a foundation psalm upon which the first 50 years built. So, and if you can get that first psalm down, you'll, it will explain a lot of the other psalms. And so here we see the path is the pathway, the course of the sinner. And David says, I haven't gone that direction, but I have followed the words that have come out of your mouth. So he's not going to follow their mission, which is a mission of destruction. And then he says this, and this is the request. He has a request back in verse 1. Hear me. Now look at request number 2 here in verse 5. Uphold my steps in what? Your paths. Uphold my steps in your path. I'm not going to go the path of the lost man. I want to go the path of your path. But guess what you have to do? You have to what? Hold me. You have to hold me up. I can't do it alone. I may even know the word. But in order for me to keep the word, you have to give me the strength. You have to hold me up. So we're going to walk down God's path. We're going to walk down God's way. The King's Highway has a very smooth surface. Not a hard road to follow at all. But we have unstable feet. Therefore, we stumble in time. And we're prone to stumble. David knows that and says, Lord, I need you to uphold me that I might walk in your head. Uh, why does he want God to uphold him? Look what he says at the end of verse 5. That my footsteps may not slip. So uh, he knows that he can slip. Has David ever slipped before? Yeah, David slipped a couple times. And we've all slipped. But we should resolve that we want to live God's way. That should be our resolve. So we need a helping hand. So that's a great prayer right there. Now look at verse 6. He says, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Look at that. I have called upon you. Well, why are you calling upon God, David? Because you will hear me. Why does a baby cry out to its parents? Because it knows its mother's going to run. It was very interesting that Andrew and Allison and their four children came back from New Mexico and visited a couple weeks ago. And the new baby, just a couple months old, was uh, in a, like a playpen, crib, whatever, at, at the other end of the house. But Allison heard every time that baby cried. Even when I couldn't hear it. And I have great ears, don't I? <laughs> There's only one reason I'm not wearing hearing aids. It's called pride. <laughs> but she heard it every time. And so he says, verse 6, I have called upon you, uh, for you you will hear me, O God. And here's his request. Look at this. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. He wants God to uphold him. He wants him to uphold him with his right hand. That basically means God's own power. And so he asks God to incline his ear. When you incline your ear, that means you. Say, what did you do? Did I hear that? He wants God to lean over and pay attention to what he's saying. And he knows that God is going to respond. And so he says, show, I like verse 7, 
show your marvelous loving kindness. Now, by your right hand, by taking action, by upholding, by getting rid of my enemies, uh, manifest your power. That's what he's asking you to do. Show your power. Not just say, Lord, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. How about showing it? I am surrounded by this group of people. Show your loving kindness toward me by your right hand. You, verse, in verse 7, you who save those who what? Trust in you. You who deliver those who trust in you. And if you, much like a baby, a baby can't change its diaper, a baby can't take the pen out of its side, a baby can't stop the calling, a baby, can't, a baby has to trust. A baby's born with trust. From the moment it's born, trust. In fact, trust is the very first thing that the developmental psychologists tell us that happens in our lives. We first learn to trust. And God, and do the parents come? Yes, it's a trustworthy parent. And he knows that God's trustworthy. He says, because when I call upon you, you what? Yeah. So uh, he says, you are a God who saves, a God who delivers. But you deliver those who trust you. That's very important. And uh, from whom does God deliver those who trust you? Look at the end of verse 7. You save those who trust you from those who, what? Rise up against them. So these are the enemies that have risen up against King David. And he says, that's who you are going to uh, deliver me from. You will deliver those who trust you from those who rise up against you. Now, this prayer tells us that David can't save himself. He's at the point where he can't save himself, or he would have. And therefore, he needs God to save him. And therefore, he is trusting God. From those who rise up against you. Now, look at verse 8. Here's another request. Keep me. Keep me. Which the word keep there means guard me. Or protect me. Now, who is he protecting? Who is he asking God to protect me from? His enemies. What? Protect me as the apple of your eye. Now, this phrase, apple of your eye, is very interesting. We know that God calls Israel the apple of his eye, but that's not really what it's talking about here, even though Israel is the apple of his eye. This is a simile, isn't it? As or like, he says, protect me as, as you would, the apple of your eye. And the apple of your eye refers to the pupil. The pupil, right in the center of your eye. Very precious part of your eye is the pupil. And what do you want to do when you have these two eyes and you go into a factory? You're going to put your goggles on because you're going to protect your eyes. So the phrase, apple of your eye, means the pupil of your eye. Protect me as you would protect the pupil of your eye. Because guess what? Your pupils are very, very precious. Without them, you do not see. And we all heard stories of, I had a friend whose son was playing with darts. And he flipped the dart up and it came playing the right and he's up. Boy, what a scary 
had a grandchild who hurt his pupil and, uh, and broke you know, with a letter of and broke his heart. So what he is doing, he's saying, Lord, keep me as you would keep the most precious, protect me and guard me as you would protect and guard the most precious thing in your life. That's what he's saying here. And here's a parallelism. Look at this next sentence. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. And here he's doing another situation. Uh, he's describing the chick uh, who is protected by its mother. The mother spreads out its wings and she brings her chick under her wings. Why? Because her chicks are the most precious thing in her life. And remember Jesus when he came to Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a mother can gather her chicks. That's how precious Israel was the Lord. He said that you would not be this way. But David trusts God. He will. So he says, God, I need you to protect me. Not only need you to deliver me and save me from these guys, I need you to protect me from these guys. Don't, don't allow them to come in, you know, and then sort of just deliver me after we've had 25,000 people killed. I need you to protect me. Protect my people. And then, who are... Who is God to protect him from? What it says. From the wicked. Now remember down in verse 7, from those who rise up against me. That sounds like an army rising up. And then verse 9, from the wicked. Notice how he describes these people. The wicked who oppress me. From my deadly enemies who surround me. This is an army most likely that's ready to besiege the city that surrounds the city, and what they want is David's head. They want to destroy him. That's why he used the word destroyer before. So that's what he's asking. Now look what he says about these enemies. Verse 10. They have closed up their fat hearts. Now you'll notice the word hearts is not in the Hebrew language. You see that? If you have... Uh, you know, pretty major translation. You may see that in italics. It just reads this. They've closed up their fat with their mouths. They speak proudly. Now, what in the world is this describing? It's not they close up their fat mouths, although they <laughs> They close up their fat, and, uh, and the fat represents overindulgence. It represents luxury means uh, it's talking about people who are self-indulgent and gluttonous and self-satisfied and selfish people. They close up. They don't share anything with anybody. These are very selfish people. Uh, the fat of their, their treasury, uh, they just hoard it. And they, just, they don't think of anybody else except themselves. This is how he's describing it there in verse 10. And with their mouths they speak proudly, proud things. And so when you just become wealthy and self-indulgent and gluttonous and self-serving and don't think of anybody else, then you become arrogant and prideful and because you think you're somebody. You know, just think of any one of us right here in this room. If we didn't give 10% of our income over the past 60 years, how much money would you have? Everyone in this room, even those of you who are poor, you probably a millionaire will say that guess what you've chosen to do. You've chosen to give to the Lord. But there are people out there, these wicked people, who don't give anything. Not only to the Lord, they don't love anybody. All they do is think of 
And that's how David characterizes these enemies, these arrogant people. He says, well, we'll throw him off the throne and we want more land for us. We'll take over Jerusalem. That's what they're trying to do. And so David feels he has a just cause here. And so he cries out to God. And look at verse 11. They have surrounded us in our steps. They're right at the, right at the doorstep of the city. They're closing in on us. Uh, we don't have anywhere else to move. I mean, we're right here. This is where we are. We can't take a step that way or this way. They're closing in on our steps, surrounding our steps. They have set their eyes. Now watch this. That's a good word right there, set their eyes. But they've set their eyes, crouching down to the earth. They're like an animal. Set its eyes on the prey, crouching down. And guess what they're ready to do? They've set their, I mean, they've got the target right there. Their eyes are set on that target. They're crouching down. And then he's going to compare, compare them to an animal. What kind of animal do you think he's going to compare them to? Look at verse 12. They crouch down to earth as a lion eager to tear his prey. And as a young lion lurking a young lion who can't just doesn't, the young lion doesn't have all the strength just to conquer its prey. Guess what it does? It sneaks up and hides in a bush and sits waits for it. Waits for the prey to be in a vulnerable position and sleeps. That's why I say that Satan is in this passage. It's just sort of hidden. It's Peter that Satan is like a growing lion lion. Prowling around the earth, looking who he may. Oh, I think we've seen a word like that, devour, that he may destroy. So uh, he describes them as these wild animals who are going to leap on their prey and destroy it. And their prey, in this case, is David in the city of Jerusalem. So David makes his request again. He says, rise, O Lord. Stand up. Remember last time we were in the Psalms last summer? He, David feels he just get God to stand up. His problems are solved. Now, notice he says, Arise, O Lord. But down in verse 7, look what the enemies have done. The enemies are those who what? Rise up. See, the enemies have arisen. And David's no match. So now what he says is, God, now I need you to rise up. You confront them. You face them eyeball to eyeball, and I won't have any more problems. So we ask God to rise up there in verse 13. Nobody says, confronting what he wants God to do. And then, cast him down. Pin him to the ground. The count of three. And he says this, deliver my life. Again, he uses this word, from the wicked with your sword. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. Now, he doesn't tell us what that sword is, but he says, with your sword, I want you to deliver my life. Now look what he says in verse 14. With your what? Hand. Look, into verse 13, deliver me with your what? 
14, deliver me with what? Your hand. Remember, you say the word hand a couple times. So, uphold me with your right hand. So, he wants God to just sort of use his hand, and however he's going to do it, just simply means use your power. Use your power and destroy this enemy. Now, notice he says in verse 13, deliver me from wicked men with your sword. And then in verse 14, he says, with your hand from men. He uses again a parallel. Oh Lord, what kind of men? From men of the world. From men of the world who have their portion in this life. Men of the world. What kind of men are that? Are they? Self-made men. Men who follow the wrong path. These selfish men, these wicked men. These men who have filled their bellies and think of no one else. That's who he's describing. From the men of this world. And that's all they think about is things of this world. And look at this. And those whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. Those whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. In other words, they're fat. They've accumulated everything. And guess what? It all comes from you. You're the one that filled their bellies with food. But they don't recognize it. <laughs> They've never given you an ounce of credit. They think they're self-made. <laughs> they're not trusting in God. They're trusting in themselves. And he says, and David say, hey, and you're the one that does love this. And they don't even recognize it. They're satisfied with children, he says. You've given them children. Children are a blessing. He says, they don't even uh, recognize that this is a blessing from you. And he says this at the end of verse 14. And they leave the rest of their possessions to their babes. Because uh, their children are going to inherit everything they got. So, this is the extent of their life. They're men who live for this world. They live. They get. They keep. They die. And they did give up. That's how he characterizes people of this world. And that's it. Men who live for this world. And then they die. These are the kind of people Solomon describes when he says, vanity. What? All is vanity. At the end, we all just die. What's the purpose of life? And finally, Solomon says, right at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, hey, I've discovered what the purpose of life is. Fear God and serve Him. That's the wonderful lesson that we should get out of life. And these men haven't learned this lesson. And now they're ready to take Jerusalem and claim it as their own, and then the next generation will be out. That's what David, these are the men whom David wants God to defeat, to rise up, confront, and slam them. But what about David? Himself. Verse 15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now, David is making a comparison between himself and the wicked men in verse 14. The wicked men in verse 14, they live, they get, they keep, they die, and their kids get. And that's the end of it. 
But he says, but for me, and they're satisfied. They live off the fat of the land. They're satisfied. He says, but for me, guess what? I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And what he's describing here in verse 15, he's describing what his death is going to be like. What's going to be like when I die? I know what's going to happen when they die. They're going to leave everything to the kid, and that's the kid, and that's going to be the end of But he says, let me tell you what it's going to be like when I die. And he relates his death to a resurrection. And look what he says. He says, I'll be satisfied. Now, are these men satisfied? Yeah, they're satisfied right now in this world. When's David going to be satisfied? Look what he says. He says, I'll be satisfied when I, what? Awake. I'm waiting for the resurrection for my satisfaction. He says, David links his satisfaction to the resurrection. When's he going to be satisfied? He says, as for me, I will see your face. In righteousness, David is going to be satisfied when he sees the face of God, when he's resurrected. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. He will see God. He expects to be resurrected. These other guys are going to be destroyed, and that's it. For them, the wages of sin is death. That's the extent that they're going to get. David says, I will wait. See, he's relating death to sleep and resurrection to being awakened. That's how the Bible describes it. Death is asleep. We're asleep in Christ, the scripture says. And but one day we will be awakened. He says, and when that happens, guess what? We want to see God's face. Now that concept of seeing God's face speaks of blessing. Uh, the high priest he said, The Lord bless thee, the Lord keep thee from this. Lord, Nikki's face what? Shine upon To have God's face looking at you is a blessing. And there's a sense in which no man can see the face of God in this lifetime and what? Continue to live. Even Moses had to turn his back. But David says, one day I'm going to see your face, and that's when I'm expecting the blessing. It's all going to be in the resurrection. And what's he going to be like when he's resurrected? Look what he says in the end of verse 15. I shall be satisfied when I awake, because I will awake out. In your likeness, I'll be like you. How did God not answer that prayer? Have you ever heard this verse before? Beloved, now we are the children of God. Yet it not, does not yet appear what we shall be like. Because it hasn't been revealed to us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be what? Like him, because we will see him as he is. That's 1 John 3 2. That comes straight out of Psalm 17. It comes straight out of Psalm 17. Almost a quote. You can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. That's why I want to welcome you on this journey. Join me. We go through Psalms in the summer of the year, too. You do that? Right. Father, we thank you for this psalm. It's 
speaks to us. It tells us in no circumstances, even when the enemy is crouching, ready to leap, not only surrounded, but ready to leap right on us at the last minute, we can still cry out to you. And as your child, uh, you will hear us because you are our father, you are our parent. You have burst us into your kingdom, and we trust you. Oh, Lord, help us to not be like the wicked, to not necessarily do bad things all the time, but they're self-satisfied, and they are selfish. They are not giving. They do not trust you. Help us to be faithful people. People that take the name of Christ. Help us to be like him. Thank you, Lord, that we one day will be satisfied in that great resurrection where we shall be like our